Amen. Please be seated. Welcome to Christ the King. To those in person and those joining us online, we begin a new sermon series this morning entitled Shine. Epiphany is the season that we're in, and shine is an appropriate uh, subject for that season. We'll be thinking about the mission of the church. Throughout the Bible, God is described as light and the light shining, and now the people of God continue to shine the light of God. Our preaching will explore this subject and Every Sunday, you will hear from one of our mission partners who continues to shine the light of the good news of Jesus Christ in our community. This Sunday, we're in a familiar passage. It's the beginning of Mark's gospel. We actually heard this a few months ago in one of the Sundays of Advent as we explored the prophets, John the Baptist being the last and the greatest of the prophets. But we hit the same passage with a different thrust this morning, and that is the baptism of the Lord Jesus. It's an important day in the life of the church. Just a little cheat sheet, anytime the clergy are wearing white, it means it's a special day, it's a day of celebration and the baptism of Christ is just that. As we look at the passage and why it's an important day for you and me, we're gonna ask three questions. We'll think about the people who came down to participate in John's ministry. We're gonna ask the question was, how are they categorized? And by understanding how they're categorized, we'll understand what their problem was. Then we'll ask, what were they hoping for? And John the Baptist articulates the, their hope for them. And third and final, we're going to see the surprising way that Jesus answers their problem. And no surprise, it's not exactly what the people were hoping for. So what was their problem? What were they hoping for? And what is the surprise answer that Jesus provides? You can see some sermon notes that are printed in the back of your service leaflet. Let's begin. What was the problem? The problem of all those men and women who came down from Judea to Jerusalem or uh, from Judea and Jerusalem to be baptized in the Jordan River. Were, they're described in one word. The only thing we know about them, and it's strangely reductionistic. We, we, we don't know their age. We don't know their sex, man, women. We don't know their job. Uh, we don't know their, we know one thing, one thing only, that they are described as sinners who are confessing their sins. That is, and their one categorization is just that. Their problem was their sin. And according to the Bible, one of the fundamental problems of all humanity, whether it's recognized or not, is our sinfulness, period. Uh, the big problem that we all have, recognized or not recognized, so the Apostle Paul will famously say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And for the Christian, it's an absolutely essential step of our faith that we acknowledge and that we recognize this fact. These people not only were sinful, but more importantly, they recognized it and they were confessing their sins as they went under the water. So Martin Luther, the great reformer, he wrote a book called The Shorter Catechism. It's actually fairly long. Uh, and in The Shorter Catechism, he gives little brief questions to important answers for uh, Christian men and women. And the first question in that shorter catechism is this. We find my notes. The first question is this. Do you believe that you are a sinner? That's how it begins. <laughs> By order of priority, the first thing that you need to know about yourself is this. Do you believe you are a sinner? And you can see this again in your sermon notes. And the response is, yes, I believe it. I am a sinner. Now, Christians are known for people who kind of talk a lot about sin. 
And it may seem at first a little bit depressing, but I want to suggest that without a proper appreciation of our general sinfulness of all humanity and the particular need for us all to be aware of it, without this, you and I will never be happy, healthy people with marriages that can last and a society that can last. Let me explain. This week was uniquely upsetting. Uh, for me, it ranks up there with some of the all-time upsetting events out there in the world that I've been privy to. I'd have to go back to September 11th, 2001 for a, a moment that rivaled the degree of just uh, disturbing images. And we talked about this in my family on, I think it was Thursday night, and we talked about the sadness and how we got to this state and all those images that you've seen and all those questions that I'm sure you have asked. What's going on in our world? How did this come to be? And as we went on in our conversation, I threw a little flag. My flag was this. Let's, let's be careful to not draw too hard of a distinction between the us's and the them's. Let's, not, let's be careful to think that there's something fundamentally different from the people who did those things which were so upsetting and the people who are sitting around the table, my, my table. And I, I suggested to my kids, and they didn't, by the way, agree with this, I suggested that Look, in a different set of circumstances, raised with different parents, in a different uh, circle of friends, there's no telling the things that you and I are capable of. And they said, no way, Dad. <laughs> but think of King David. King David, the great shining star of the Old Testament, the shepherd boy, taken out of the field, put as the king, uh, take a, the, the giant slayer, wrote the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, but the 23rd Psalm, as you know, is not the only Psalm he wrote. He also wrote the 51st Psalm, which begins with, have mercy on me. I know my transgression. In sin, I was brought forth into the world. And the Psalm is written on the occasion in which the golden boy, King David, took another man's wife and killed the other man to hide his deed. And we can think, how could he? And it's right to think, how could he? But there's no fundamental difference between him and you and me and the people who did those awful things that we witnessed. I'm not suggesting that we should be soft or that crimes should not be punished. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I am suggesting is that we can be a little more judicious on our righteous indignation. And I feel like we have an increased level of righteous indignation. And you know the expressions that uh, embody righteous indignation. Things like, how could you? Or here's one of my favorites, I could never associate with someone who. Really? Or uh, those are the expressions that embody righteous indignation. And I find it very unhelpful, frankly, very tiring. And there's a problem with righteous indignation in that it assumes something about the indignant that is just not true. And what is not true about the indignant? That they are righteous. There's no such thing as good righteous indignation. God was indignant in his righteousness, but you and I aren't God. And I think if we appreciated this common fact of our own fundamental flawedness, you, you and I would be happier. 
our society would be more, remember our government is based upon the premise of a balance and checks of balance and a, be, why? Not because we're all so good, but because one needs to keep check of the other. If every marriage had its foundation, this understanding that you, that every marriage is composed of two deeply flawed people just trying to make it work, that's no, it's not, it's not a surefire recipe for success, boy, but I guarantee without it, that's a surefire recipe for failure. Their problem, our problem, is our brokenness. And they acknowledged it. And they, they were the sinners that went down to the river to pray. That was their problem. What was their hope? Well, we're not told their hope, but we can assume since sin was their problem, they came with two basic hopes. Number one, they hoped for forgiveness. And number two, I have to imagine they hoped that we can do a little bit better. We can get this sin problem behind us. And you can see that articulated by John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, look, I will baptize you with water, but someone is coming mightier than me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, I can take care of the outside, but Jesus, unnamed here, he will come and he's going to take care of the inside. Doesn't that sound great? The sin problem that is infecting these people will be dealt with fully and finally. That is a great hope. I think that's our hope as well. And I don't think that's just a Christian hope. I think all sane, reasonable people, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, all sane people probably hope that they can have their sin problem dealt with. Like think of the seven deadly sins. Lust, anger, envy, pride. I'm not going to be able to list them all. Uh, greed is up there. Gluttony. And I don't know a single person Christian, atheist, irreligious, whatever. I don't know a single person who says, you know what? I just really enjoy my envy. And that's just, I, I like being envious. And I love for my envy to grow. Anger, who likes to, to be angry? No one. I don't know a single person who, who would not want what they wanted and that was to be done with the problem that was plaguing them. The only problem is that dealing with these sins that are so buried in our heart is a little bit like weeding the garden. And I was a terrible weeder of gardens. That's why I don't do it anymore. Um, but I did do it. My mom would assign me to weed the garden and I'd pull out the dandelions. And you probably know this, dandelions have very deep roots, but you can just pluck off the top and no one would know the wiser. So that's, as a 10-year-old boy, uh, is what I would do. And that's a little bit what battling these entrenched sins feels like. Pluck the weeds out or pluck the, the leaves off, absolutely. Otherwise, the weeds will overtake the garden. But to, to deal with the real problem, to deal with the real pride or envy that's woven into my heart, it seems like digging in with a, with a, with a spade that, that, that just doesn't go deep enough. One author says this, most sins are desires over which a person has at best only variable control. Faithful warriors against pride, envy, anger, experience familiar failure, slight improvements, painful conquests, broken treaties, and humiliating compromises. Amen. Anyone who's had the 
done battle with pride or envy has had that same experience. And so we can all resonate with the Apostle Paul, who in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans says this, for I don't understand my own actions. The very things that I do not want to do, I do. Excuse me. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want to do, but I do the very things that I hate. And that is the expression of someone who has recognized the fundamental problem of their own sinfulness. So the passage goes on in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul just throws his hands up in the air and says, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which brings us to the third point. The surprising way in which Jesus answers or fulfills the problem that they are all facing. Notice that he doesn't immediately baptize them with the Holy Spirit and this problem of their sin does not immediately go away. Right? If you follow the tradition of the, the disciples throughout the Gospels, you, you would be hard-pressed to say that they are a better slice of humanity at the end than when they began. They don't immediately, aren't, they are not immediately fixed. As a matter of fact, the promised baptizer, Jesus, is himself baptized. And uh, you can imagine John's confusion. And his confusion is articulated in Matthew's Gospel. John says to Jesus, wait, you, I should baptize, you should baptize me. I should not baptize you. Jesus prevails and is baptized. And he takes his place. He begins his ministry by taking his place with all of those men and women who confess their sins and go under the water. Said poetically, under the water, he takes his place with all of Adam's drowning race. Look at verse 5. All of Judea and Jerusalem come to the Jordan. Verse 9, in those, in those days, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee came. All were baptized in the river Jordan. Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan. Jesus takes his place with all of sinful humanity. Under the water he goes. Christmas always, this Sunday of baptism always follows Christmas. In Christmas, we celebrate the epiphany that God is with us. But in the baptism, we remember just exactly who Jesus is with. Because Jesus is not universally with all people. There is a slice of humanity that Jesus is not with. And we encounter those very same people that Jesus is not with. One chapter later, in Mark's gospel. Jesus is at table with tax collectors and sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees see this and say, why does he eat and drink with sinners? You can hear their indignation. How could he? I would never associate with. And Jesus is never with the indignant righteous. Jesus is not with those who do not recognize their common affliction, 
that they have the same common affliction as the rest of humanity. Jesus is not with those who do not recognize that they are, like everybody else, sinners. Jesus, as he begins his ministry, undergoes the same baptism as sinners. That's how he begins it. Throughout his ministry, he eats and drinks with sinners, exclusively. Three years after his baptism, Jesus would die on the cross for sinners. And friends, Jesus is for sinners now but only for those who recognize that they are. Psalm 51, in David's great psalm of repentance, says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That was true then, that is true now. And that is the hope of the Christian faith, that God meets us in our weakness, in our brokenness, in our sinfulness. One author says this, what makes Christianity a religion of grace is its essential revelation of a God who meets us in both our individual and collective sin with a love that knows no bounds. The kind of love that lays down its life for its enemies. That is to say, Christianity at its sustaining core is not a religion for good people getting better. Christianity is a religion for real people coping with their failure to be good, or in light of this passage, we could say Christianity, Jesus Christ is for real sinners who know what they are. I'm pursuing a degree from Catholic University. One of the leaders of that church said this, the confessional should not be a torture chamber. Rather, it should be a place where the penitent meet the tender mercy of God. Now, there are a lot of difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, but the point is taken. The moment of confession is not a torture chamber. It is a place where the penitent meet the tender mercy of God. Under the waters, they take their place with all that Jesus takes his place with all of Adam's drowning race, and that's where he still is, waiting to meet with sinners like you and me. And it's not the only place where we encounter the tender mercy of God, but my goodness, it is a primary place. So friends, I invite you to turn to your sermon notes, and we're going to end with a uh, Lutheran liturgy. I'd ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you what Luther asked all the members of his church. And you can respond, and then we'll move into the creed. So please rise. Friends, do you believe that you are a sinner? Yes, I believe it. I am a sinner. Then praise God 